2: So how you feeling, Tammy?
0: Uh, Shane, I just got to tell you, I feel like I've been run over by a truck. This is just number two. And I know that this is a temporary feeling and I am so grateful for it. But also, like, if I don't quite form coherent sentences during this episode of Rational Security,
2: you will understand. Sadly, it's not because we're drunk.
1: No, I think we should just all make a point of being basically incoherent today to keep Tammy on her toes and to me ma- and to like to see if we can induce actual incoherence and confusion in her.
0: <laughs> it will not take much, I promise you.
2: Dose <laughs> 2 is real, people. Hello and welcome to Rational Security. Maybe I should have said, hello, welcome to Rational Security. (laughs) Hi, Shane. Hi. (laughs) The gas is the new toilet paper edition. Could be the dose two edition. That would have been fun, too.
0: That's the really slow edition. You have to speed it up two times.
2: (laughs) Exactly. If you normally listen to us at 1.5, just bump it to two.
1: I'm going to talk really fast this whole episode to just foil everybody who's trying to do that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Some people might call that an improvement. Yeah, you sound like very much like a chipmunk there, Ben. That was pretty good. I can talk very quickly. You sure can. My goodness. Oh, wow.
0: You can't see the helium balloon that he's holding.
2: <laughs> ah, okay. Well, it sounded like that. We are in the remote jungle studios. You have a lion's head behind you, not an actual one, which makes it seem very jungle-like. Here with my good friends, Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hi, everybody.
1: Hi, Shane. Hey. Would you
2: like to describe the lion's head behind you right now?
1: Well, so at the cabin in the woods, because we have a cabin in the woods and we thought we needed a taxidermy for the cabin in the woods, but I like animals and I don't want to kill them. So we have lots and lots of mounted heads of all types of fake animals. One of which is a wrought iron metal lion's head, which is in back of us, which really puts the jungle in, uh, actually, lions don't live in the jungle, but uh, I suppose puts the wildlife in the remote jungle studio.
2: Yeah, that song is a lie in the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. Ain't no damn lions in a jungle? It's
0: just another example of how we mislead children every
2: day. truly is. It truly is. It truly is. Although now some listener is going to point out that there is like a lion species that lives in the jungle, but that's fine. Tigers live in jungles, though. Just so we're clear. On the podcast this week, the death toll rises in Israel and Gaza as a historic wave of violence enters its third day. A ransomware attack leads to the shutdown of a major gas pipeline in the US, and the GOP identity crisis enters its latest phase. Um, let us start first with the situation in Israel uh, and Gaza. I will just read here from the latest from my colleagues at the Post line Tel Aviv, civilians in Israel and the Gaza Strip endured a third day of deadly rocket attacks and airstrikes as the worst violence in years between the Israeli military and Gaza militants continued to escalate on Wednesday. Even as airstrikes were launched and air raid sirens sounded, Palestinian citizens of Israel poured into the streets, burning cars and fighting police in scenes that recalled violent uprisings that rocked the country decades ago quote here from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. It brings to mind scenes from our past and we cannot accept it. I will call on all public leaders, especially Arab leaders, to condemn this and act in any way possible to stop it. So, Tammy, start us off here. As the the reporting has said, we've seen violence like this in the past. This is different. This is more intense. Just briefly tell us, how did the two sides get to this point where they seem to be slipping closer and closer to war?
0: Well, that depends on where you want to start the story. Do you want to start it? you know in the nineteenth century?
2: I mean, like the proximate cause, not yeah. like yeah, this is not like right, but not, not not the history lesson. It's
0: not an entirely facetious question because where you start in trying to discern proximate causes in these kinds of conflicts, you know, can can be a matter of interpretation and bias in and of itself. I guess what I would say, I mean, in the narrowest sense, the proximate cause has been rising tensions over the course of the month of Ramadan, involving restrictions on Palestinian access to the Old City and to Al Aqsa Mosque, the Temple Mount Haram al Sharif, during Ramadan, as well as this court case involving the evictions of Palestinian families from Sheikh Jarrah, where they've been living for generations. And a ruling was due in that case this week at the very end of Ramadan. So that led to tensions and violence in Jerusalem over the last several weeks. And Hamas sort of got into the game by launching barrages of rockets at Israeli population centers, and Israel has now responded with airstrikes on Gaza. So once again, we see tensions in Jerusalem, giving incentive to Hamas to sort of claim the narrative, and then ending up in an Israel-Hamas conflict in which civilians on both sides pay a very heavy price. That's the proximate cause. But I have to say, I think there are there are a bunch of other things going on here. One of the things that's going on here is the way in which the framework of the Oslo process, much derided and certainly hasn't delivered on its promise of a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But the Oslo framework did, in certain ways, stabilize the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians, A number of repeated steps by Netanyahu governments over the last decade have eroded and chipped away at that framework, including settlement expansion, house demolitions, expulsions from East Jerusalem, and last summer, the threat of annexation of territory in the West Bank. You can say, looking at that pattern, that it was only a matter of time before these structures that had been to a certain extent, putting some boundaries around the tensions, we're going to break. That's the first thing. But the other thing that's going on here is, I think, a hard test of a thesis that was put forward by a lot of people when Israel and the UAE made their big breakthrough to open diplomatic relations last summer some of my colleagues analysts and former diplomats who've worked on this issue for many years said that the willingness of arab states like uae bahrain and morocco to set aside their concern about the israeli-palestinian conflict in pursuit of cooperation with israel was a testament to the extent to which the conflict no longer mattered as a driver of regional developments, and that it should force the United States and others to completely rethink their fundamental understanding of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and how it might be resolved. I think that hypothesis has been tested, and it has failed very clearly. This latest escalation demonstrates the folly of trying to marginalize this conflict, Folly for Israel, folly for its new Arab friends, and folly for the Biden-Harris administration. All three of these sets of actors decided that they had other priorities in the region, primarily related to Iran, and they wanted to put this on the back burner. But guess what? The people living with the conflict get a vote.
1: Yeah, so a couple of other things with respect to this. One important element of it is that the violence over the last few days includes three different segments of Palestinian society that do not always have the same interests. So one is Gaza, one is Jerusalem Palestinians, and the third is Palestinian citizens of Israel. There has been uh, rioting and violence and police actions against protesters and 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 rioters in uh, a number of arab joint arab israeli uh, sort of mixed cities across israel including some ones where you know that are have been note, sort of famously peaceful over a long period of time and that actually suggests to me that you know the degree of of disenchantment among Israeli Arabs is is quite high. uh, That uh, you know, this has been something that people have been warning about for you know quite a while. But particularly was exacerbated by the Israeli Nation State Law, which was passed a number of years ago, and which really contained a number of slaps in the face to Arab citizens of Israel. But also um, just the day to day trouble of building. Uh, getting permits to expand your house, things that in ways that uh, Israeli society is traditionally not very equal. And you have this accretion of this uh, stuff over long periods of time. And it is, you know, a mistake for Israelis, I think, to think this is just Hamas. It's also the people in the town next door to them, and sometimes in the same city as them. So I think there is a real reckoning going on here, or at least there should be.
0: Well, and if I can just add to that, I think part of the reason that you see not only in this round of escalation, but in the last couple of rounds of escalation, you see protests also in Haifa and Nazareth and places like that, is because of the way in which the Israeli right itself has blurred the line between Arab citizens of Israel, Palestinians who are citizens of Israel, and the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza that they treat as their adversaries. You know, since these proposals to compel Palestinian citizens to swear a loyalty oath, the ultra-nationalist, vigilante violence that has been going on all over the country, including this week, the murder of a an Arab girl in Lod. So this is, you know, this is something that, that has been brought about in part by the fact that, that there has been no serious engagement on Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking, but also by the fact that Israeli political discourse has increasingly demonized and treated Palestinian citizens as other, as a fifth column, as illegitimate, etc.,
1: And ironically, all of this is taking place as negotiations have happened after this, the fourth Israeli election in two years or some remarkably short period of time, in which both the current government under Netanyahu and the proposed those who would replace it are for really the first time seriously negotiating with Arab parties to support and be part of their governments. And so this takes place against this weird backdrop in which, kind of for the first time, the taboo of dealing with the Arab parties in the political system is starting to crumble a little bit.
2: So I want to turn forward on this because like, you all have like very skillfully diagnosed the current condition, which I think you've made a very persuasive argument that it is is in large part kind of outgrowth of this idea that there was never going to be a two-state solution. We don't need to worry about this anymore. It feels like a lot of this just got slipped into the rearview mirror and people wanted to pretend that these conflicts weren't real and weren't still vicious. Okay, so what do we do now? Because I mean, this is as bad as it has been in a long time. The death toll is rising. Clearly, the two sides and the United States and others can't just, you know, look away from this. So practically speaking, what is going to have to happen next?
0: Yeah, I think that, that is the right question. So the Biden-Harris administration announced, Secretary of State Blinken announced this morning that he is planning to send Hadi Amir, um his deputy assistant secretary of state for Israeli-Palestinian affairs, out to the region to try and mediate. There's been a flurry of diplomatic contacts between the U.S. and Israel, the U.S. and Egypt, the U.S. and Jordan, and so on, in an attempt to see if a ceasefire can be Broker between Israel and Hamas. But that may be the most urgent element of de-escalating this situation, but it is by no means sufficient. To me, as I said, I think that this breakdown is a crisis that has been anticipated for a while, and now it's here. And so the Biden-Harris administration needs to take the necessary lessons that they can't pursue their other goals in the region while putting this on the back burner, that this threatens to overwhelm the other things they're trying to do and the coalition they're trying to build. And so they need to commit to some assiduous efforts to get Israelis and Palestinians back on the path toward a negotiated resolution. Now, that's not a simple thing, and it's not going to happen anytime soon, but it simply can't be ignored.
2: Can you flesh that out a little bit more, though, Tammy? Like why? I mean, I, I, we've established, I mean, the violence is terrible, right? And it's, it's threatening to spill over. That clearly seems to be something that needs to be addressed. But why would this threaten to overwhelm all of the other plans in the region? Just to spend a little more time explaining that.
0: Sure. So it's been very interesting to watch the Arab governments, Arab state governments, who have had openings to Israel, and how they and their controlled state media have dealt with this issue, how Arab social media in the Gulf has dealt with the issue. The first few days as violence was escalating in Jerusalem, their controlled media gave it basically zero coverage. But as the violence escalated and as Israeli forces entered the Temple Mount on one of the holiest nights of Ramadan, it became impossible to ignore. And so remember, these are Arab governments that are not in any way democracies, but in the wake of the Arab Spring are um, necessarily anxious about public opinion. And Jerusalem is the one issue they simply cannot ignore when it comes to public opinion. So it will inevitably constrain their ability to cooperate with Israel and the United States.
2: Ben, did you have any last things you wanted to add?
1: Yeah. One other quick item on this, you know, even if you can get the violence between Israel and Hamas under control that does not address the question of the domestic Israeli conflict with, you know, has been pretty energetic um, both in Jerusalem, but also in, in a bunch of towns. And, you know, that is an internal Israeli matter that is going to have to be resolved through the Israeli political system. And, you know, that's, a, that's itself a tough, a, a very tough set of issues that they're thinking about. And again, they are doing it without a government.
2: All right. Well, turning closer to home, our own new lovely crisis, one of the US's biggest pipeline operators, Colonial Pipeline, announced last week that it was forced to shut down after it was hit by a ransomware attack. Uh, Listeners of the podcast will probably know, but just in case, ransomware is when uh, essentially your computer networks or your data are hijacked by uh, an attacker who demands money or other compensation to release them uh, and give you back control of your information or of your system. Uh, Colonial acknowledged that its corporate computer network got hit. Uh, It crippled the company that supplies 45% of the fuel on the East Coast. Uh so far we know a criminal gang known as Dark Side has been identified as the perpetrator. I think there's some question about where this group operates. Could they
0: come up with a better name? <laughs> right.
2: I mean, Dark, Dark side? side. I mean, seriously. It's called Hacker Group. That's Nether actually regions. a real thing, maybe. <laughs> <Nether regions. laughs> Evil Computer. <laughs> um so there's already been, by the way, now that we're in its third day, or I think we're past the third day, actually, of the shutdown. I mean, it's the fourth day. There's not been a major impact, I think, yet on the markets for gasoline, but there are already report really sporadic reports, anyway, of people hoarding gasoline, fears that the system won't come back online right away, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Questions about whether or not the media is hyping this, we're going to get to. Ben, we've seen a lot of ransomware attacks before, including on critical infrastructure like hospitals. Clearly, there are a lot of ransom wax, ransomware attacks we don't hear about, presumably because people pay the ransom. Uh, and there's an insurance policy that gets implicated in that. But tell me, do you think that this colonial pipeline attack, does this strike you as as different uh, than the ones that we've seen before, these kinds of ransomware attacks?
1: Not really different, at least not in the modality of the attack, or of the behavior of this mercenary criminal gang that you know launched it. It is a little bit different in that it seems to have captured a public imagination enough to actually change consumer behavior. And you do seem to be having a run on gasoline that... Is a little bit reminiscent of the run on toilet paper at the early parts of the, you know, early stages of the pandemic. I don't think this has anything to do with the actual ransomware. It has to do with, you know, hoarding behaviors by people. Look, ransomware is not a new thing. Uh, Ransomware directed at critical infrastructure, people have been warning about this for a long time. I do think it's important in the sense that, you know, it it shows once again that the people who have been on the more alarmed side rather than the less alarmed side regarding the state of critical infrastructure, cybersecurity, are right. If you can get in there for purposes of, of installing ransomware, you can presumably also get in there for purposes of shutting things down or disrupting things or, you know, causing gas leaks or whatever. This is mercenary behavior, but the fact that you can do it shows that you can do other behaviors. I do think we have to assume that if dark side, nether regions is in there, then presumably the Russian state and the Chinese are also in there, or at least could be if they wanted to be. That said, I we've kind of been assuming that for a while. And so I don't know that this tells us, very much that we didn't know, it does declare very loudly that the the emperor has no clothes, but it wasn't like the emperor looked especially resplendent in his robes before that.
0: United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com.
2: What do you think? Yeah, I want to take the side of the hyperbolic reporter on this, because you're absolutely right that We've known something like this could happen for years. And when people have gamed out these kinds of scenarios... One of the things that policymakers and people in national security have worried about is a public reaction and potentially a public overreaction to what is happening, right? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt pervades, which is precisely what was one of the driving forces behind trying to create policy that would actually defend critical infrastructure in the first place. And it strikes me like there's a there's a strain of reaction out there that I'm seeing of kind of shrugging at it and saying, well, we knew this would happen, and the press is just being hysterical, and people are overreacting. I mean, it's a fucking gas pipeline to just shut down for crying out loud. Like, that's not imaginary. This happened, and we can argue about the reaction to it and whether it's overreaction, but it happened, (laughs) and, like, it shouldn't.
1: Okay, so I totally agree with that. We shouldn't be shrugging it off. It's a big deal, that this could happen there are a few reasons to not overstate what a big deal it is one it wasn't the ransomware that shut down the pipeline the ransomware was an attack on the corporate computer system the corporation shuts down the pipeline as a precaution in response so uh, your point is right but it's not like a bunch of a bunch of russian Criminal gang people, you know, said, hey, now we will shut off the pipeline.
2: Yeah, but they, we all both know that they could. And also, that's like a distinction without a difference, maybe, but go ahead.
1: I don't know. Uh, but the second thing is, I do think people are being way too complacent about this to the extent that they're saying what you're reporting that people are saying. Anytime foreign criminal entities can cause a U.S. entity to shut down the oil supply to the East Coast. It's a very big deal.
0: I also think that this raises two issues we talked about before, but kind of points to the need to put them back on the policy agenda. One being that critical infrastructure protection needs to be a priority. And we have a challenge in this country doing it as compared to some other countries because a lot of our critical infrastructure is in private sector hands, not government hands. So how do we deal with that? Part one. Part two, I think, Shane, goes to your point about should we be freaking out about this? Because yes, the capability to do this should make us freak out you know, it should make the government anxious. It should lead to more attention on critical infrastructure protection. But in all the years since 9-11, one of the key concepts has been the idea that we need to build public resilience, that shit's going to happen and we can't go around freaking out every time some shit happens. Companies and the government need to take a responsibility to do a good job of protecting our credit card numbers and our access to energy supplies and our physical safety. And we need to have enough trust that they are doing that, that we can go about our lives knowing that this shit is going to happen sometimes. And right now, we don't have either of those two pieces. And maybe that's why it's still worth freaking out.
1: I also think it is worth distinguishing between taking it seriously and freaking out. Like, I actually don't think there's any distinction between what you're saying, Shane, and what I'm saying. You're saying, It's a very big deal. Sure, we knew this was going to happen. We knew this was going to happen. We knew we've been people have been warning about it for years, but it's a very big deal. And I'm saying exactly the same thing in the in the reverse order. So I, I think the real question is, you know, should you regard this as an unacceptable baseline and be unsurprised by it, or should you regard it? as an unacceptable baseline and be surprised by it.
2: So, Ben, I want to ask you then a, a lawfare question on this, which, <clears throat> you know, let's, let's just, this is kind of hypothetical, I suppose, but presuming that the Biden administration wanted to respond, or any administration would want to respond to something like this, this is not a state actor, at least we don't think, that is engaged in this behavior. Um, and put aside the question, or well, maybe we'll have to deal with the question of whether, like, technically they shut the pipeline down or their actions caused the company to shut the pipeline down. But how does the law of armed conflict govern a response here? What does it have to say about this? I mean, if this were, you know, if the Russians had positioned a ship off the East Coast of the United States and fired a cruise missile at the pipeline. That's pretty clear we would know how to deal with that. But here we have a criminal group which may or may not be operating in Russia. President Biden said something kind of clunky about their ransomware seemed to be in Russia. I'm not sure really what he meant by that. But, you know, is this kind of like a 9-11 situation where we say, all right, um, you know, Al Qaeda was also a stateless adversary that attacked the United States, and we are to some degree holding responsible Afghanistan for harboring them. Like, how do we go about thinking about how to respond to this, and what what the law has to say about that?
1: So, there has been a lot of thought on this subject, and it does not amount to a very coherent set of you know, doctrinal answers to that question. So for one thing, there's the question that you identify, which is, who is the actor that you would respond to? And the answer is, well, that's a murky question. And it really depends on a set of facts, like, who is the group responsible, and what is their level of contact with toleration by encouragement by any sovereign government? Right. So, are you dealing with a situation like uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, Putin's chef, right, who runs? The Internet Research Agency, it's a private organization, but he's understood to be running it on behalf of Kremlin interests, right? Or is this simply a situation where there's a criminal gang somewhere in Russia or Eastern Europe whose activities are not being shut down and prosecuted, but they're not necessarily state sponsored? You really need to know the details of the answer to that question before you can start figuring out what the proper level of state responsibility is. Second, there's another issue which you didn't mention, which is, is it actually a use of force for international law purposes, right? I mean, we gain entry to other countries' computers all the time and you know, this is not actually a destructive, necessarily a destructive attack. It's a criminal attack. It's a it's a ransom situation. And so how do you characterize the attack itself? And then the third issue, of course, is do you have, and I think everybody would prefer, to think about it in the language of criminality. So is the issue here, you know... An attempted extortion, an attempted or a, a real extortion, a, a CFAA violation, a computer fraud and abuse issue. And is the problem that you have with the foreign state that that state is not assisting in the investigation and prosecution of that? Uh, that is, it's creating a safe haven for people to engage in this kind of criminal activity, or, Is your problem that the state has procured foreign hackers to conduct this activity on the part of the state? Those are actually very different problems. And so I think the short answer, which is not that short, is that without knowing a great deal more, which I assume the intelligence community does, about who the actors are here and what precisely they're doing and on whose behest. Uh, it's very difficult to answer that question in an authoritative way.
2: And do you think, I mean, is this, this is the last quick question to end this segment.
1: Is there something
2: sufficient about the, you know, or, or something severe enough about this attack that you think the Biden administration needs to do something visible to respond to this? A, a separate from how we've responded to, you know, ransomware attacks in the past, which has basically been to say, yeah, we should really try and do something about that.
1: So, the Homeland Security Department, even before this attack, has designated uh, ransomware as one of the low hanging fruit issues that you know, a little bit of policy and a little bit of corporate good doing would make a huge difference. And they actually, Majorcus designated this as one of the 60-day sprints that DHS is working on on cybersecurity. We had a lawfare podcast episode with some of the DHS cyber people about that. Look, this is an area where our defense sucks and you know there's low-hanging fruit to do on the defense side. I also think between this and solar SolarWinds, uh, there is a lot of reason for the administration to want to send a message on the cyber side to the Russians. And whether that message is cut this shit out or whether the message is, hey, you got to get these criminal gangs under control really depends on how you think about the relationship between those gangs and the Russian state.
2: Well, speaking of holding people hostage, the Republican Party.
1: Good, good job.
0: Nice segue. It's
2: not bad. It's not bad. It's not bad. It's a little spicy. Uh, the House Republican Caucus today voted to kick out to strip Liz Cheney of her number three leadership position in the caucus. For, I guess, you know, the question, what is the proximate cause of kicking Liz Cheney out, Tammy? Um, Well, Liz Cheney had refused to go along with the lie that the election was stolen, had refused to endorse ongoing Republican efforts, particularly at the state level, to conduct audits and recounts and to try and find, I don't know, bamboo in ballots to prove that they came from Asia. is one thing that's been happening. Bamboo. This is a real thing.
0: It goes deeper than we ever knew,
1: Shane. There's so much more to uncover about this.
2: Yes. They're looking for bamboo in the ballot boxes. In
1: Arizona. I just love the fact that they assume that if it comes from China, the pulp must be made of bamboo. It's like it's it's a big country. There's you know
0: I also just think it's amazing that bamboo has to come from China. Like I could find some bamboo within five miles of this house right here easily yeah
1: but not in paper yeah there's a lot of it (laughs) the ballots
2: in rural virginia are not made of bamboo. tammy come on all right all right all right uh so liz cheney is out as leader she has been you know a constant presence reminding people that no the election wasn't stolen Elise Stefanik uh, from New York, <clears throat> who did not get elected as the Trumpiest of, or has not been, she preceded Trump in the Congress, actually, uh, in her election, I should say, has not been the Trumpiest or didn't start out that way of Republican lawmakers, uh, now has clearly kind of claim that mantle probably uh, sufficiently enough that they are going to elevate her probably to the number three position replacing Liz Cheney. We don't normally talk raw politics on the show, but I think there's arguably a big national security implication here, um, which is that one of the two major parties is staking apparently its core identity on public allegiance to a falsehood that sparked an insurrection and a violent attempt to overturn the election. I doubt that Kevin McCarthy, who's a Republican leader in the House, would agree with that characterization. It sure seems like a lot of his fellow Republicans might. There is a report out today that a number of Republicans may actually leave the party and form another party, a kind of, uh, I guess it would be, you know. Not essentially a Republican in exile. It would actually be Republicans who we don't know all of them yet, but a number of folks who would actually try to form an alternative um, that is principally based in the idea that no, the election was not stolen. Um, so jump ball here. Do you all think this is a temporary crisis that the party just needs to get through, kind of a tactical maneuver? You know, remove Liz Cheney so she'll stop talking about the president and then we'll figure out what to do? Or is there some kind of political DNA that's being rearranged here to the point that the only way a Republican will credibly be able to run for president is to say, I too believe the election was stolen?
0: So I I think that there are two things that it's worth separating here. There are probably more than two things, but let me just separate these two. One is whether believing in the, quote, new lost cause, unquote, of the 2020 election having been illegitimately stolen away from Donald Trump, that I think is clearly now a part of the identity narrative of the Republican Party, and um, it's going to be very hard to root that out. I, I have to give credit to Professor Caroline Janney, who made this point well before November 2020 in a Washington Post op-ed last summer, that this might well become, you know, part of a Republican tribal identity. And to the extent that, that a core chunk of the Republican base and a number of Republican elites are rooted in this tribal identity of Republicanism, then I think the lost cause is now central to it. But that is separate from the question of whether every national Republican politician is going to have to declare fealty to Donald Trump as Donald Trump now in order to be successful. Maybe it will be enough to to declare fealty to the, to the big lie of the November 2020 election, but then explain your differences with Donald Trump today or something like that. Um, So I think it's going to be interesting to see the way Republicans try to navigate this as they set themselves up for the midterms. I don't think that a third party has much chance in our system, the way it's structured. But one of the things that to me is going to determine that is where does Republican money go? One of the interesting things has been the way we've seen some corporate money, And some Republican leading Republican donors shift away from the pro-Trump part of the party as a result of January 6th. And so is that going to continue? And then I also have to point out this new ProPublica report about the brand new multi-million dollar pro-Trump donors. That Trump and his people have brought into politics over the last four years. So are they enough to keep a Trumpist Republican Party going without the traditional corporate base?
1: First of all, I think it's worth saying a word about Liz Cheney, because uh, she may be right now the most hated in america between republicans who've discovered they hate her and uh, liberals who have always hated her because
0: she's Uh, always voted with trump even though she doesn't agree with him about what happened in the election
1: yeah i mean there's this is a person genuinely without a constituency anymore except i suppose for the 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 crowd around the bulwark and the crowd, what Charlie Sykes likes to call the newfound respect crowd, you know, the the people who suddenly discover they've that, you know, they have a newfound respect for Liz Cheney. But I I do think what she has done over the last three months requires enormous political courage. And the fact that she's the you know, one of the very few who's done it shows how rare that courage is. And so I I do think, you know taking a moment to distinguish between her posture and that of Kevin McCarthy or Elise Stefanik or uh you know the many republicans who are braying for her blood at this point and and now have gotten it strikes me as as important i do also think that a party that predicates its core identity around something that is nakedly and transparently false is in a very dangerous place and I'm not an electoral forecaster I'm not going to say whether this helps them or hurts them in 2022 but it has been a long time in in fact I don't think in any of our lifetimes that the core identity principle of one of the major American parties is a falsehood you know I think you have to go back to the sort of southern democrats who for you know, a long time the core identifying principle of the Southern Democrats was that blacks and whites are not equal, right? You have to go back to, you know, something that is, you know, you know, decades ago, before you get to a party embracing as an identity principle, something that is as as false and as anti democratic as this. And I, I do think that's a very dangerous place. For the party to be. I also think it's obviously a very dangerous place for the country to be because in a two-party system, both parties eventually win. And if you have one of the two parties embracing ideas that are not reality-based and really not consistent with democratic governance, that's a very bad situation. And just to put a fine
2: point on that too, in conversations that I have with security officials in five eyes countries, I think they that what you're saying Ben resonates with them because they do not look at the election of Joe Biden as saying, "Wow, the United States has gotten itself back on track and oh, they really dodged a bullet." They look at this and say, "No, this your one of your two major parties is, you know, losing its mind from their standpoint and it seems like a um Maybe not a high likelihood, but at least a moderately high likelihood that they might actually reelect Donald Trump or someone who also believes these lies. That is profoundly destabilizing in their eyes and has really led to a kind of, you know, in Washington, I think a lot of people breathed this sigh of relief and there was actual dancing in the streets when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were finally declared the winners. I don't see any of that from our allies. They seemed not as nervous as they were. Uh, you know, some months ago, um, but by no means, you know, optimistic about the future. And that is stark. I've never seen that kind of a pessimism and a real sense that we may be unable to live up to the promises of our alliances in the 22 years I've been covering this subject.
0: Yeah, I want to footstep that shame. It's something I've been thinking about a lot because you know, my colleagues who do transatlantic relations, my colleagues who do uh, relations with our East Asia allies, and I think you see it among the Eastern partners as well, even though they're not treaty allies. There's a sense that, okay, we get that you're back, but for how long, really? Like, can we count on this? We're not so sure. And this problem of the challenge of making credible commitments internationally. You know, and how does the Biden administration tackle that challenge when Biden, you know, in his address to Congress basically was pleading with Republicans and Democrats to do their jobs and pass bills that address the needs of the American people, not just for its own sake, but in order to demonstrate to the rest of the world that the United States really is truly back. And it it strikes me that both for Biden and maybe for Republican leaders, they are trying to get past Trump as a potential candidate or a spoiler. Biden, by saying, look, we can get stuff done anyway. Just please work with me on this for the sake of the people. And the Republican leadership, I wonder whether What they think they can do here by by enshrining the lost cause is make Trump a mere symbol like he's actually just a symbol, not an actor. Um, He's not driving it. They're going to put him on a pedestal and then they're going to just point to him every now and then. That maybe that's the most optimistic take.
2: Well, we will see what happens, as he likes to say. All right. It's time for a very special object lesson. And fun fact, this object lesson was recorded quite some time ago, and you're only hearing it today. Uh, If you're paying careful attention to the top of the show, you will notice that we were absent. One of our four Rational Security members, Susan Hennessy, who, through the magic of technology and time travel, is here with us now and has some important news to share. So, Susan, over to you.
3: I feel like I should start this like a video. Will if you're if you're watching this, I'm dead. No, just kidding. I'm not dead. I yeah. We are recording this from the great beyond. I don't know when you will be able to air this, but I am leaving Lawfare and Brookings and Rational Security for the, the wonderful reason of um, I'm returning to government service. Um, I will be joining the Justice Department in the National Security Division and am. Absolutely thrilled and and, um, honored to be part of the incredible work that the team uh, there is doing. But um, it comes with this uh, terrible downside that I've been in denial about thus far, which is that I'm missing um, and and leaving all of you guys. So I didn't want to leave without getting um, to say goodbye to our listeners who have been so wonderful and welcoming over these past, God, five years, you guys. And, um, you know, just to tell you guys, like, you know, to the listeners, thank you so much for listening and letting me be a part of this, and caring about what I had to say each week, and um, and reaching out and sending messages, and really creating the most like wonderful, surprising community to me. Um, and to the three of you, like I will miss you so much. This has been just the joy and privilege of my life to be able to sit down once a week and and talk with people as amazing and smart and wonderful. And I love you guys. I'm going to miss you so much. I'm going to keep listening to the show, like the Muppets in the Balcony, where you like yell your opinion about things (laughs) and and then leave like really detailed five-star reviews that have like all of my thoughts, like listener to, you know, insert at this point but I just I'm like thank you so much for letting me part be a part of this crazy thing I'm gonna start crying if I keep talking much longer but just thank you and and goodbye and I just will miss you guys every Wednesday at one o'clock like my heart will twinge a little bit
0: You'll Aww. be busy, though. What
3: you don't yet
0: know is that you will be so busy that you won't mm-hmm. even notice mm-hmm. it's one o'clock on Wednesday.
2: I just also want to be clear. I would totally be fine with, uh, you know, senior administration official Susan Hennessy coming on the podcast whenever mm-hmm. she
1: wants. I, just, I want it very clear that you have quit the podcast. <laughs> we didn't fire you. 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 <laughs> in your official capacity anytime. to be on the podcast anytime Whenever i'm frankly shocked
3: that this podcast has not disqualified <laughs> me at some point <laughs> <No> <laughs> I'm at surprised, <laughs> but really shocked
0: i i think it's fair to say that if you find yourself with any detailed on the record responses <laughs> to our discussions on the show mm-hmm. you're very mm-hmm. welcome <laughs>
2: You're also welcome to, like anytime you want. Statements. Yeah, you can tweet at Ben. You're full of shit or whatever.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to make, like, a very thinly veiled, um, like, burner account, right? Like, rat sex <laughs> you have fan to name it after, like, uh You have to name it after a Western philosopher, though.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, my mm-hmm. God. Just
3: the airing of my grievances. Um, and then vehemently deny it to me for all time. Yeah. There
1: Until Ashley Feinberg out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to say... Uh, Those who have listened to Rational Security from the beginning, which is to say both of you, will remember that there was a time that there were only three of us on Rational Security. And and it
0: was not as good. It
1: originally started with just Shane and Tammy and me. Mm -hmm. And then Susan came to work for for Lawfare and filled out Rational Security. It became the crew that it is now. And this was a, a great... A great thing for the podcast, a great moment, and I think has defined who we've been ever since. And uh, Susan has made contributions to Lawfare that are extremely visible and that you can go read and find and see. And then a thousand other contributions to Lawfare that if you dug for a hundred years, you would never find and yet are so important to the way the site has developed and so I won't have very many opportunities to say thank you in public but I will uh say it here because uh you know you're here and we're here and I will also say that you know you never really leave lawfare cuz once we have our claws into you we will drag you back and you've been dragged back once and Expect it to happen again. Here, <laughs> here,
3: and I expect all rational security coverage of the Justice Department moving forward to be like the brilliant, oh. magnanimous, <laughs> and very wise Department of Justice has
1: one, once again
3: knocked it out of the park.
1: And whenever we criticize anything, we will be sure to exempt mm-hmm. NSD. Yes,
3: explicitly.
0: which which
1: is above reproach.
0: <laughs> and Susan, I. I have learned so much from you over our years doing this weekly conversation together and I I can't right now imagine what rational security is going to be like week after week without you but I refuse to accept that my life will be without you because even though you're changing jobs you are not moving to North Dakota and I'm grateful for that that's like my little recompense right now and I think One of the biggest consequences of your departure from this podcast is not only the loss of your wisdom, but the fact that all those people who like to listen to their podcasts at one and a half times speed, but couldn't do it Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. of your amazing speed are (laughs) now going to be able to speed up their listening and get through the rest of us in half the time. There you go.
3: The silver lining. It also means that now our favorite reviewer will have to write woman very loud instead of women very – females. Female very loud instead of females very loud.
2: Um, I will just echo what Ben and Tammy said. Um, And uh, for my my part, uh, the best part about this podcast, I think, is – Susan, you said it. It's getting all of us to be able to sit down together and – talk the way we actually would talk if we were talking about these things. But I always have walked away from this feeling smarter, having my thinking be better organized. You are a huge part of that. And as somebody who is sort of like gets to play conductor on this um, this um fun little orchestra every week, um, I've just always known that every single week I can count on you that you're always going to bring something exciting to the table, interesting, provocative. And Tammy's right. This podcast was like not nearly this fun before you showed up. Um, So thank you for being game and saying yes when you did and not regretting it. It's been tremendous fun. It's been so great to become your friend, to be a partner with you in this. It's It's never not been fun. And I'm just very, very grateful for everything that you gave to us. And to the show and to all of our listeners. And we will miss you. But, you know, this is a show that is devoted to trying to have deep discussions about, as Loffer puts it, hard national security problems. And I think I speak for all of us when I genuinely believe the country is going to be better off for your service. And I know how deeply that means something to you and how important this is to you. So good luck and congratulations. You totally earned this and we are all going to be better off for it. And now I'm going to cry.
3: Thank you guys. I'm going to miss you all so much. And this this is not the end. And I will keep listening and I can't wait to hear your beautiful voices in my ears every week. And to know that behind the scenes, there was a tech issue. There was a garbage truck that came in the middle. Um, And, and uh, have a glimpse of all the behind the scenes, glamor and glitz of life (laughs) at rational security. And I can't wait to see what you guys do with it from here.
2: Okay. Bye Susan. Bye. Bye. Yeah, all right. So that was a big object lesson, you guys. I know. I know. Hearing it again was not easy. It was hard the first time, but, you know.
0: What's that cheesy 70s song? I know we'll never love this way again.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I just want to say to all of the nasty right-wing trolls who've been tweeting mean things about Susan over the last few days, Good for you. Good for you. Oh,
2: boy. Well, that is the end of the podcast for this week, you guys. It's a big week. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find uh, commemorative Susan Hennessy Christmas ornaments at <laughs> Susan is a rockstar. Yeah,
1: you can actually uh, uh, find them at the lawfarestore.com. Saint- Saint slash. Susan Hennessy.
2: <laughs> Susan Hennessy devotional candle.
3: <laughs>
2: I love it. Just put like her face on the Robert Mueller candle. That yeah, would be exactly.
1: That with, with 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 oh, Muller's stern gaze.
2: Yeah, excellent. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL security. You can still find us on Facebook. No oversight board decisions here for us, people. We're still there. Uh, Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It helps others find the show and click that share button. Share rational security with your friends, whether they've recently taken an oath to uphold the Constitution or not. Let them know about it. They would love to hear it. Our audio engineer this week was Ian Enright. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Liz Cheney singing the Celine Dion classic, My Heart Will Go On. It works in two ways.
0: Yes, it does.
2: Like, it's, 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 it's both works for Liz and for Susan, actually.
1: There you go. I, you, you clearly put a lot of thought into that one.
2: Yeah, clearly. Sophia Yan, also huge, huge Celine Dion fan no idea if that's true. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman-Wittes, and a big, big virtual hug to our dear friend, Susan Hennessy. I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Bye.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.